This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Ari Schoenbrunn, author, motivational speaker, and someone with a remarkable and inspiring personal story. And we're very excited to hear about that story today, to learn from it, hopefully to be moved by it. Welcome, Ari. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Before we get to the meat and potatoes, the narrative that has thrust you into the spotlight of sorts over the last number of years, tell us what led up to that. Where did you grow up? What was your Jewish background? And take us up to that day 15 years ago, the several years of your life before that. I was born in New York, in Crown Heights, actually, until I was about six years old. Moved to Far Rockaway, spent the next uh, formative years in Far Rockaway, up until uh, I was 14. 14, my family made Aliyah. I went to high school in Israel, went to college in Israel. Which college? Barilan. Okay. And then I came back, you know, started my career on Wall Street working for, first job was United Mizrahi Bank. So you're working for an Israeli bank at the time? I was working for a subsidiary of an Israeli bank at the time. I spent 10 years there. In the interim, met my wife, got married, had four kids, two, two girls, two boys, wonderful. And in 1993, I went to work for Cantor Fitzgerald. You know, our offices were in the World Trade Center. We occupied the top five floors of Tower One, 101 to 105. Basically, above us was Windows on the World. You know, it was a typical household growing up, modern Orthodox family, yeshiva day schools, and the like. The school in Israel was Mizrahi school. It was a little bit more to the right. Not related to the bank. Not related to the bank, no. <laughs> and as time went on, I did start moving to the right, becoming more religious, got involved in Dafyomi. And when I met my wife, who's incredible. She really helped me grow a lot. As I said, we had four kids. We ultimately had a fifth child, by the way, eight and a half years after the fourth one was born, which was a total surprise for everybody. <laughs> and everything was great. Where, um, what brought you back to America? It sounded like your family moved for high school and, and you stayed there for a while. Well, you have to remember that was in the 70s. Israel in the 70s was a very, very difficult place to live. The economy was terrible. There were no jobs. It was just, I, I just felt like there was nothing for me there. And so I picked up and I moved back. My older sister, my older brother had moved there in 1969, two years before we made Aliyah. And then we made Aliyah, my family, my parents and myself and my younger brother. And then over time, my sister got married and she came back to the States. And then I came back to the States and my younger brother came back to the States. <laughs> state actually was my older brother. But again, the economy was terrible. There was nothing doing. So I just decided to take the opportunity. I picked up, I came back to the States and figured, let me give it a shot here. And the rest is history. What area of banking were you in with investment banking? No. Well, when I first started in United Mizrahi Bank, I worked in the trading room. I traded foreign currency. I traded uh, US treasuries. I traded gold and the like. After 10 years at Mizrahi, I moved to a small shop where I was just trading currencies, which was great. And then in the early 90s, the bottom fell out of the market and the currency market and shops were closing down. And that's when I went to work for Cantor Fitzgerald, getting out of the trading side and going into the admin side. Means managing the systems, operations? Correct. Not on the revenue side, managing the businesses, basically. And that's what I was doing until September 11th of 2001. So now, just before that, you said you were there in 1993. If I recall, that was the, the time of the first World Trade Center bombing. Is that correct? Correct. But that was in February of 93. I didn't join until October of 93. So I missed that first bomb. What brought you to Cantor Fitzgerald in its heyday? Was it a really uh, major firm? What was it equivalent to? 
So Cannon Fitzgerald was something called an interdealer broker, which basically meant they didn't have retail customers. They didn't deal with retail. They dealt with the Solomon Brothers of the world, the Merrill Lynch's of the world, you know, the Bank of America's of the world. Those were their customers. So just to, to give you a, a simple example, if you wanted to buy a bond, let's say, you want to buy a treasury note or treasury bond, you would call your broker at, let's say, Merrill Lynch. And you'd say, look, I want to buy a six-month or a, or a one-year treasury bill, or I want to buy a two-year note or a 30-year bond. And he would tell you, okay, here's the price. And you would say, okay, fine. Now, what did he do? He would call Canner and he would say, I need to buy whatever it was. He bought the note, the year, and he would buy it from them and then he would pass it along to you. And that's the way it works. So we did never dealt with the retail. We only dealt with the large institutions. That's why we were called the interdealer broker and institutional brokers. That's what we were. The way I got to Canner Fitzgerald was when I worked at the bank, we dealt with Canner as well. We bought and sold with them. And Howard Lutnick, who is currently the CEO of Canner Fitzgerald, he was a broker at the time and he used to cover me. So when I left the business and you know I, I bumped into him at a cocktail reception, whatever it was, he asked me, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm looking. And uh, he said to me, great, I need a guy just like you. You're the most honest guy I know. Would you like to come work for me? And I went like, sure, why not? <laughs> and the rest was history. It's amazing that he seized on, not on your skill as a trader, but as uh, on your honesty. That is correct. That's exactly why he hired me. What do you think gave him that impression? How do you think you fostered that reputation in your workings with him? It's hard to say. I've you know, always been honest, obviously. In those days, he was single. And I used to invite him for you know, sukkahs. I used to invite him to come to the sukkah. For, for Pesach, I used to invite him to come for a seder. You know, it's just who I was. It was the kind of natural thing that I always did. And he came. He came on sukkahs. He held my children on his lap. And he saw the type of family that I had and saw the type of people that we were. And so he knew. He knew who we were and what we were. That's a beautiful testament. So flash forwarded to September 11th, 2001. Of course, a day that lives in infamy and is a day that I'm sure many listeners remember and I'm sure many do not remember at this point. Take us to that morning. What was that day like? And take us through the events of the day. So that morning was not unlike any other morning. It was a beautiful full day. If you've seen the, the videos and whatnot, you, it wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was a beautiful day. It was actually about 20 to 7 in the morning. And believe it or not, we had finished davening early. He has to start 20 minutes earlier so they can get finished with slichos, get finished with davening. So when it's time for the second meeting to start, they can start in the shul, not in the Ezra's Nashim. And just to clarify for any listeners, this was during the period of time where extra prayers are added on before the high holidays, before Rosh Hashanah. And so the, the services on that given day would normally have taken longer than a typical regular weekday. So most Orthodox Jews that didn't make it in that day was because of Slichos that they didn't make it because it took extra time. By us, it was actually the opposite, where we got finished earlier because... You know, normally we would have got, we would have been done by about seven. In this case, we were done at six thirty or twenty to seven. So basically, it was about twenty to seven in the morning. I had my briefcase over my shoulder. I had a cup of coffee in my hand, and I yelled up to my wife, "Bye, hun, love you, see ya." I yelled up to my kids, "Bye, kids, have a great day in school." And I started to head out the door. And then my wife yells down to me and she says to me, did you do Baruch's book order? Now, Baruch was my third child. He was eight years old at the time. He's now 24 and just got married a week and a half ago. Thank you. And I learned something very important that day. I learned that teachers have a wonderful way of torturing parents. <laughs> It's called the Scholastic Book Order. Oh, yes. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. Again, it was a week before Rosh Hashanah. My wife is a school principal. She just opened school. She was starting to cook for Rosh Hashanah. She started to get the house in order. I mean, she just tremendously busy. And she didn't have the time to deal with him. And she said, it's your job to deal with him. And I went like, 
okay. So she said, did you do his book order? I said, no, I didn't. She goes, you're not leaving the house till you do the book order. So I put my briefcase down, put my coffee down, went into my kitchen and proceeded to negotiate with my eight-year-old. <laughs> about 20 minutes and I whittled them down to two books. Um, <laughs> you mustering all your skills as a trader, I would imagine. Interestingly enough, the two books were from a series called Survivor. Wow. You're going to see a lot of things throughout my story, by the way, that truth is stranger than fiction. I'll tell you this, the book order was actually due on Monday, but Baruch left a pamphlet in school on Friday and he never brought it home. So my wife wrote a note to the teacher asking her if she can have an extra day and she said yes and made sure the pamphlet was in his briefcase. 9-11 was a Tuesday. Right. If he would have brought the pamphlet home on Friday, I would have done it with him on Sunday. Right. I would have been at my desk on Tuesday at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you'd be interviewing somebody else now because I'd be dead. But because he left his pamphlet in school on Friday, you and I are having a discussion today. Incredible. Anyway, so I wrote out the check, wrote out the tear sheet, put it into his knapsack, and off I go, now late. And I get to the Trade Center at about 20 minutes to 9. My office is on the 101st floor. But you couldn't get to the 101st floor with one elevator. You needed to take an express to 78. And then on 78, you changed. It was a sky lobby, just elevators and a security desk. And then you changed there for the elevators that would take you up to the higher floors. There were about 11 or 12 of these huge elevators that went up express up to 78. And I stood down in the lobby waiting for the first one to come down because it had turnstiles. And once you go through the turnstile for one elevator, you couldn't get to another elevator. So I made sure to stay back just to wait for the first one that came down. And the first one that came down was all the way on the right side of the lobby. So I ran down to the end of the lobby and I got into the elevator. We got up to 78. And the elevators that I needed now to get to my office was all the way on the left side. So I hung the left and I started walking down the sky lobby. And I must have been about eight feet from the bank of elevators when as best as I can describe, there was an explosion. I literally thought a bomb had gone off in the elevator. The entire building shook. The lights went out. The place filled with smoke. And I was literally thrown off my feet. I was on the floor. And I heard people screaming and firing the elevator. And there was all kinds of panic and whatnot. I had no idea what was going on, but I was scared. I'm looking around. I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, I see a light in between two banks of elevators. And I figured, you know what? It's an emergency light. It's probably a good place to go. But I remember as a kid, what do you do in the smoke? You stay low to the ground. I literally crawled from where I was to that light. And I got up and I didn't know what to do, where to go. So I kept walking around the whole and, and I came around to a door and I opened the door and there was a security office. It was eight and a half years I'd been in that building, never knew there was a security office on that floor. When I opened the door, there was a woman security guard sitting down on the floor with her back to the wall and she was just crying her eyes out. And I leaned over to her and I said, ma'am, calm down. We're going to be okay. We're going to get out of here. She calmed down a little bit and I went into the room. There was a guy who was the fire warden for the floor. He's the guy who's, you know, can supposedly knows what's going on and tell you where to go and what to do. And I ran over to him. I said, what do we do? Where do we go? And he looks at me and goes, I don't know. Of course he didn't know because we didn't know what happened. Nobody knew what happened. Right. I didn't know it was 14 floors above me that a plane went into the building. I went back outside to see if I can find a way to get out. I bumped into a coworker of mine. Her name was Virginia DiChiara. Now, Virginia was on the elevator that I was about to get on when the plane hit. And there were three people in that elevator. There was Virginia, Roy Bell, and Renee. And when the plane hit, the walls of the elevator collapsed. The ceiling collapsed. There was a cable that snapped and it was sparking in the elevator. And the jet fuel came down the sides of the elevator 
and was ignited by the spark and there was a wall of fire. Doors had started to close, but when the plane hit, they jammed, so they were open about a foot. Roy Bell jumped out first. He jumped through the fire first. He suffered second degree burns. Virginia jumped second and she suffered third degree burns. And Renee basically died from her burns. Aye. Yeah. So I'm in the hall and all of a sudden I see Virginia and she is, she's a wreck. Third degree burns up and down her arms. Her clothes are burned. Her hair is singed. She was a wreck. She looks at me and she sees me. And she says, Ari, thank God, please help me. Whatever you do, please don't leave me. And I said to Virginia, I will help you. I won't leave you and we will get out of here. And here's the irony. She and I were not good friends. She was an internal auditor who was hired a year before at Canner. The first department she audited was mine and she almost got me fired. Wow. And there we were. And, you know, it, it was a decision. This woman almost cost you your career, but I couldn't not help her. Sure. Just couldn't. So I took her into the office. I sat her down, gave her some water to drink. And then finally the guy says, okay, we can get out sterile on the left. So we walk out and I don't know where sterile on the left is. We finally find it and we open the door and there are lights in the stairwell. I guess they were emergency lights. And what time is all this, by the way? I don't know. I don't know because other than the fact that I looked at my watch when it was 20 to 9 when I was staying in the lobby, next time I looked at my watch, it was a quarter to one in the afternoon. Goodness. Time had like stood still. I opened the door. I see the lights and there is myself, Roy Bell, Virginia, the fire warden. There are about six or eight other people with us. And I saw that there were lights in the stairwell, but I figured to myself, you know, if lights go out, it'll be pitch black. So I turned around to the people behind me. I said, does anybody have a flashlight? Figuring if lights go out. And two people behind me, they're like, yeah, we got flashlights. And I was thinking to myself, where did you get a flashlight? Like for what are you waiting for Monty Hall to show up? <laughs> anyway, so I said, listen, folks, if the lights go out, nobody panic. We will have light. And the next thing I did was I looked down at Virginia's feet and I said, thank God she's wearing flats. Because I'll tell you, there were high heeled shoes in that stairwell all the way down. Women had just kicked them off to get down as fast as they could. It was, it was amazing. We got down three flights of stairs. We got down to the 75th floor when one of the biggest miracles of the days happened. My cell phone rang. Now, people don't think much of it, but on that day, certainly back then in the trade center, any other day in the trade center, you could never get signal on your phone. So I used to stand by the window in my office, couldn't get signal. And here I was in the middle of a building and it was just like nothing. And the phone rang. I was so shocked. I picked it up. I went, hello? It was my wife on the other end of the phone. And she was telling me something about a plane going into the building. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said to her, Joyce, I'm in a stairwell. I'm on the 75th floor. I'm on my way down. Now is not a good time. I said, I'll call you when I get out of the building. And I hung up the phone, not realizing, of course, it would be hours until I would speak to her again. But I felt a little bit of comfort in the fact that at least I knew now that she knew that I was alive. That was crucial for me. We got down to about the 50th floor and Virginia turns to me and says, Should be, I can't go on. I can't go. And my first thought was to have her sit down. We'll rest a little bit and then we'll keep going. And then I thought, you know what, if she sits down, she might never get up. And if she doesn't get up, there's a good chance she'll die. And I went like, no, Virginia, you can do this. And somebody had a bottle of water. We gave it a drink. We poured it on her arms for relief for the burns. And I'm counting the floors down now. I'm coaching 45, 40, 42. You're doing great. You're doing great. And we were doing great until 38. And the 38 was backed up with people because that's where the firefighters stopped the people from going down because they were going up. So I'm running scared. I'm turning around. And I said, is there a paramedic in the building? I have a burn victim. We need help. If not, please step to the right and let us through. And they did. We over as much as they could and they literally opened a path so that we can get down. We got down to the first floor and the fire warden who was leading us the entire way keeps going down. I says, you know, where are you going? He goes, we got to go out through the garage. I went like, okay. I turned to Virginia. I said, look, we just came down 78 flights of stairs. What's another four or five? And we headed on down. We got down about two flights when all of a sudden the door on the first floor opens up and some guy yells out, 
where are you people going? I went, we're going out to the garage. He goes, no, no, you can't get out through the garage. You got to come back up here and come out through the first floor. Well, I said to Virginia, we got to go back up two flights. And she said a few things I can't say in mixed company. <laughs> and we headed back up. Here's the interesting point. I learned later there were people in that garage that never got out. Who was the guy who opened the door? I don't know. I never saw him. I only heard a voice. And why did he pick that moment to open the door? I have no idea. But that guy or angel or whatever you want to call it saved our lives that day. So we came up and when I came out through the first floor, I saw that, you know, we we're right by the lobby of Tower One. The police and firefighters were telling us to go through the mall, through the atrium. It was a long walk to get out of the building. We got out on Church Street. Cops were there telling everybody uptown everybody uptown people were running uptown and then um, I stopped the cop and I said you know I got a burn victim where do we go he goes across the street in front of the Millennium Hotel we're setting up a triage center there there's gonna be an ambulance there bring her there and I did and sure enough an ambulance shows up and I help her into the ambulance and I kind of breathe a sigh of relief because at this point in time she's finally getting medical attention the only thing I can do is help keep her spirits up but I couldn't help her medically and now she's finally getting medical attention the interesting thing was that the ambulance wasn't leaving and I turned to the driver and I said you know why aren't you going and he says we can't leave until we fill the ambulance we're expecting a huge amount of casualties which really never happened given the magnitude. I mean, right. you were either very, very much alive or very, very much dead. There wasn't a whole lot of in between. So she was writhing in pain. And I said, Virginia, hold on. Anyway, they finally filled the ambulance and they said, okay, we're ready to go. And I'm going like, great. You know, she's going, she's leaving. Guess where I'm going? I'm going back to the building because I left a bunch of friends and coworkers and whatnot there. I'm looking to help. That's all I'm doing. I'm only looking to help. I'm not going anywhere. And Virginia turns to me and says to me, Ari, you're coming with us. And I went like, Virginia, you don't need me anymore. I'll get a hold of your mom and she'll meet you there. You're fine. You're going to be okay. She turned to the ambulance driver. She says, we're not leaving unless he comes with us. I turned to the ambulance driver. He looks at me. I look at him. He says, fine, hop into the front. And I get into the front and we pull away. We were one of only a few ambulances that actually got away from the scene that day. Right. I know there's an ambulance in the museum. I saw pictures from Hatsala guys of crushed ambulances. She thanks me every single day for saving her life. And I tell her, you got it all wrong. If she wouldn't have insisted that I get into that ambulance, I would have been standing at the base of that building when it came down and I would be dead. No doubt in my mind. But because she insisted that I get into that ambulance, I'm around today to tell a story. It was a long, long day. I got to the hospital and then I had to find my way, figure out how to get home. And it was, it was a long story. Where did the ambulance take you? St. Vincent's Hospital, which was on 7th Avenue and 12th Street. Okay, so a little bit uptown. Yeah, I had no idea where it was. I had no idea where I was when I got out of that ambulance. Right. I, I don't think I'd ever been in that neighborhood before. Did you stay with Virginia? I helped her get into the emergency room and then they actually threw me out. What happened was they brought her into the emergency room, they started to work on her and then everybody disappeared. Like the nurses, the dogs, they all disappeared. I don't know where they went, but they left her alone and I was standing there and she's in pain. And I don't know, I said, you know, hang on, I'll, let me get, let me see if I can find somebody. And I went back out and I said, hey, you know, I need a doctor. You know, finally a nurse comes, what's the matter? I says, we've got a burn victim here. Nobody's here. You know, need help? Okay, just a minute. And they go and the doctor comes and I said, look, we got a burn victim. He goes, and who are you? I go, oh my, I'm her coworker. I brought her in here. He goes, you're not a relative? I go, no. He goes, you can't stay. You got to leave. And he literally threw me out. You can read all about it in my book, Miracles and Fate on 78, which is for sale either through my website or through Amazon. It's also available as an ebook for those that like to carry little tablets. But uh, I didn't get home that day until 5.30 in the afternoon. And there were 20 people in my living room. I had about 100 phone messages. And back then it wasn't digital. Back then it was a the little micro cassettes. I actually still have it. I can't play it on anything because, <laughs> but I still have it. And I learned something very important that day. You have no idea how many friends you really have until they all think you're dead. 
Back to the morning. Do you remember? It sounds like, understandably, it was all kind of a fog. Do you remember the first tower coming down? I guess it was Tower 2 that came down first. first. When they threw me out of the emergency room and out of the hospital, when I went into the street, because I was looking for a a phone, right? I was trying to find a pay phone, and I was trying to find somebody who had a, a cell phone that was working. And as I walked out, I heard somebody go, wow, did you hear? Tower 2 collapsed. And from St. Vincent's Hospital, you had a clear view straight down to the Trade Center. And sure enough, Tower 2 was gone. And that was that was just a pit in my stomach like you wouldn't believe. You know, during the course of the day, of course, I wound up in some guy's apartment and I actually managed to get a hold of my wife. And when I did get a hold of her, she was crying, actually, because the last time she spoke to me, I was on the 75th floor of Tower 1 and then it collapsed and she didn't hear from me. So she literally lived through this twice. She thought I was dead. Do you remember knowing kind of what was going on at all? At some point, was there a sense like, hey, there's a terrorist attack going on? Or is- oh, I knew that. I, as soon as I got out of the building, when I put her into the ambulance, I turned around. There was a guy standing there and I turned around. I looked at the towers and I turned to him and I said, to him, how did building two get on fire? And the guy looks at me and he says to me, what are you talking about? Because, you know, I I felt the first plane. You know, my wife right. told me, plane went, all right, but I never heard the second, which was people don't believe me, but believe what you want. But I never heard the second plane. I was just, you know, I was so focused on what I needed. Yeah. Do. And the guy says to me, yeah, two jetliners went into the buildings. They're calling it a terrorist attack. So at that point in time, I knew what had happened, but I never thought the buildings were going to come down. I mean, look, I saw the big hole. I saw the gaping hole in the building. I saw the smoke. I saw the fire. But in my wildest dreams, I never thought the buildings would collapse. Did you instinctively realize once you were out of the building that this was Cantor Fitzgerald that was most likely directly hit or hit? Oh, for sure. Okay. I could look at Again, I saw the hole. I know where I was and I know where our offices were. So I knew that we suffered a huge amount of casualties. What was the casualty counter? What percentage of the firm Six, on that day? 658. From Cantor Fitzgerald? Yes, 658 people from Cambridge Shield that were killed that day. Out of a total of 960 employees, the other 350 obviously were uh, not in the building. Was that the largest hit enterprise? Yes, absolutely. What has become of Canterford Shield since then? Is it has it rebuilt? Has it? Oh, they've rebuilt. They're bigger, stronger, and better than they've ever been. Still in the same space. Still in the inter. Uh, yes, still still in the same space. Not physically. Right. Um, yes, but that, that's still their business. They are shifting. They've gone into real estate now to diversify. They are on 59th Street and Lexington Avenue is the the headquarters now. They're never going to go downtown. Because of the trauma. Yeah, correct. It's interesting. You could kind of see it in both ways. You could see a firm saying... We want to specifically, you know, go back and demonstrate our fortitude or whatever it might be. And then, of course, you could easily understand the other perspective of the sense of pain and trauma. Right. That was much greater than just the, oh, we're coming back. No, we can come back. We don't need to come back there. We can come back on 59th Street as well. I want to understand a little bit about what changed for you after this. I'm curious, just while we're on the firm, what changed professionally after this? I imagine the firm was obviously decimated and in a state of total chaos and tragedy and, and, and mourning. How did, from a, I guess, a corporate perspective, how did they respond and react? What was sort of the process from there over the next months and, and I guess even years? Well, Canada was always a family-oriented business in the sense that, you know, we lost 20 sets of siblings because we hired family. And at the time, everybody that was left, everybody wanted to come back to work and everybody wanted to rebuild because, you know, we knew we had to do something. And that's what happened. There were people that had left the firm that, called up and said, look, we'd, we'd like to come back. Can we come back? Oh, we want to help. And we needed to hire people as fast as possible. Were there employees not in New York? Were there other offices? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, we had satellite offices in Dallas, Houston, Boston, LA. So two-thirds of the firm was not lost. It was two-thirds well, of the firm personnel. 
Yeah, but you have to remember that everything was done out of New York. That was the nerve center, right. Satellite offices were salespeople. All the executives and the... Everybody was in New York. The whole operations were all in New York. So what happened was we had backup in our London office. We had a very big London. We had 800 people in our London office, but they didn't know New York business. So they had to be trained and we had like two days to do it. So we did. We ultimately did. And people came back. I mean, I went back to work on Thursday. The only day I didn't work was... I was... Obviously, I didn't work on Tuesday and I didn't work on Wednesday. But by the time Wednesday night, I called my boss and I said, look, I got to go back to work. Where do you go to? There you go. That was the question. I spoke to my boss and he said to me, we have a disaster recovery site in Rochelle Park, New Jersey. You can come there, but there's no room. I said, no, I got a case. All right, so come. And then on the following Monday, we got space from UBS Payne Weber. They gave us space in Weehawken, New Jersey, and they gave us space at 299 Park Avenue. So the front office went to 299 Park and the back office went to Weehawken. I wound up in Weehawken for nine months where in order for me to get to work, I had to take a train, a bus, and a boat to get to work every day. Goodness. Let me tell you something. It was not fun in the winter. <laughs> a nice frigid flow. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness. I'm curious, did you find that in that environment, there was a relaxing of competitive norms that other firms and other businesses, even competitors, I would imagine they could have sort of taken advantage in that moment and sort of stepped in or they could have vowed in. What was it like? Let me tell you something about Wall Street. The bond market opened on Thursday. The stock market opened the following Monday. And most people didn't realize it, but the question was, why would the bond market open on Thursday? The stock market wasn't opening up. Well, what happened was back then, Cantor Fitzgerald, as far as the treasury market goes, was the 800-pound gorilla. Cantor did 70% of the treasury business. And you're talking about- That's a huge share. You know, yeah. And companies were jealous of Cantor for what they had. And when Cantor went down, the heads of the other inter dealer brokers got together and they basically said, you know, if we force the Fed to open on Thursday, Canner is never going to be back in business by Thursday. And if they don't open, they'll be dead. So they really tried to take advantage. Yes, they did. And yeah, well, that's Wall Street. But we did open on Thursday and our customers stood by us. They actually almost killed us with kindness because they threw so much business at us. We didn't really have the capacity to clear all that business. So it was a little touchy situation, but we did it and we came back and rebuilt. Like I said, I went back to work on Thursday. I couldn't sit at home and we just kept going. Shifting back to you personally, I want to understand on a macro level, what changed for you, what shifted for you, and maybe just to laser down specifically, that was a few days before Rosh Hashanah. Right. I will tell you. On the one hand, I always tell people I was the same guy on Wednesday that I was on Tuesday, other than the fact that I lost 658 of my friends and coworkers. Nothing for me had really changed, so to speak. It could also be that I was just in total shock. But as time went on and I started to tell my story, I realized the magnitude. I realized this was not just a series of coincidences. This was, I tell people, this is my own personal Purim story. Started out of just, you see the coincidence, you have the coincidence, you have the coincidence. When you put it all together, you see that it's not, it's the hand of God. There's no other explanation for it. Now, it's interesting you ask me because it was a week before Rosh Hashanah. I used to lead morning services on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And when I was in shul and it came time for me to get up there, my wife had spoken to one of the boy and one of the other guys who, who ran the whole show, whatever. And she said, look, I don't know what his reaction's going to be. So do me a favor, please just stay close to him. And it was emotional for me. I got through 
it's hard to stay, but I, I got through uh, Shmona Esrei, got through that part. And I had my boys, by the way, standing on either side of me. They wanted to be near daddy. That's nice. And when I finished the silent Shmona Esrei, I took three steps back and there was a bench behind me. When you pick up the Torah, a place to sit, so there's a bench behind me. And I took the three steps back and I sat down and I just lost it. And I started to cry. And dear friend Aaron Dobin came over and he helped me and put his arms around me or whatever. My boys were next to me. It was very, very emotional. I didn't think it was going to affect me like that, but it did. Once I got through that, then I got through the rest of the dominating and everything was fine. I imagine most of the members of the shul knew. Oh yeah, everybody knew. Everybody was kind of wondering what was going to happen. Yeah, it was very, very emotional. But you know what? It was an experience that changed my life. It really did. One of the biggest things, and I talk to audiences all the time, and I tell them, you know, one of the biggest things that I did was I took it upon myself that I was not going to curse anymore. No more swearing, no more four-letter words. And let me tell you something, on Wall Street, these guys are worse than drunken sailors. Even the word wall is four letters. (laughs) Yeah, it was tough. But you know what? I made that decision. And what happened was, that because I made that decision, anytime people would be around my desk, everybody knew Ari Sherman doesn't curse, nobody else would either. So because I made a decision, look at the effect it had on other people around me. And I talk to people all the time and I say, you know what? It's all a decision. It's all it is. It's just a decision. You have to want to. And it's always the same thing when people tell me, well, I can't. I say, no, you can. You choose not to. They all get upset about that. (laughs) No, no, I can't. No, you can. You choose not to. So it's that kind of thing. So I made that change. People used to ask me, did you get more religious? Were you religious beforehand? Yes, I was brought up Orthodox Jew, whatever. Did you get more religious? And my initial response was always, well, if being a kinder, gentler person means more religious, then yes, yes. Yes. Otherwise, I would say no. But as time went on, I really believed that I actually did become more religious because, you know what? It was something that is a once in a lifetime, hopefully, thing that just has a tremendous impact. I'll also tell you that the change in me didn't happen overnight. It was gradual. And when it goes gradually, it kind of sticks. If it's instantaneous overnight, then it never sticks. Look, New York City changed. Right after this happened, everybody was nice. The flags were flying. Everybody Cab drivers were nice. Everybody was nice. Six months later, it was worse than it ever was. Didn't last. So what did you do to ensure that your change was enduring? Again, because it happened slowly. It just stuck and I'm very happy. Is it something that you think about frequently today as that waned over time? It's not like it was, but I always think about it. I mean, I can't not. You know what I'm saying? It's just part of my life. It's part of who I am. It's part of what I am. And it's never going to go away. It's always going to be there. And to a degree, it's good because I go around the world speaking about my experience because I don't want people to forget. I mean, even now. All right, so it happened. You know, it's it, now it's history. There are people that are teaching it in school because these kids weren't alive when it happened. People are forgetting, and I don't want people to forget. I work on a college campus, as you know, and the incoming freshman class this year, I believe they were born in the year either 99 or 2000. So they were either one or two years old. Right. They have no idea. You know, I mean, I certainly remember watching everything, the coverage, and I was in rabbinical school at the time. And what inspired you to write this book? You referenced the book earlier. You referenced a lot of speaking. How did that come about? Did you make a decision one day, I'm going to get out there on the speaking circuit. I'm going to put this, was it, a, was it a therapeutic device for yourself? Did somebody say, hey, you got to write a book? I mean, what happened there? Let's start with the speaking part because that's what came first. It must have been in the September, beginning of October 
of 2001, and a friend of mine called me up, and she said, Yeshiva Farakwe is having their annual Malava Malka, and the theme of it is going to be 9-11, and they're putting together a panel of three people. One is going to be Mechel Handler, who ran Hatzalah. Hatzalah being the large Jewish community. The second one was going to be a guy by the name of Charlie Dadun. I still remember his name. Charlie Dadun was an American Airlines pilot, and then they wanted me to round out the panel. And I went like, well, what's the format? And she said to me, it's going to be a Q&A from the audience. I said, all right, I could probably do that. I said, sure. And time goes by and she says, okay, great. Somebody will call you. Anyway, nobody calls me. It's the Wednesday before the Malava Malka. I call her up and I said, Shifi, you know, is this thing still on? Because nobody ever called me. She goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Somebody will call you. Anyway, so that night somebody calls me up and she goes, okay, so we're still on for, I says, okay, great. I said, what's the format? She goes, so you'll speak for about 15 minutes. (laughs) I'm like, wait, what happened to Q&A? Oh, we're going to do that afterwards. Is this going to be a problem? I went like, I guess not at this point. When we got there, they started the program. Bechel Handler went first. And he had an incredible story. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, he had 100 guys down there and he lost nobody. Yep. And when he spoke to the captain of the FDNY, after it was all over, and the captain of the FDNY said, so how many guys did you lose? And Michael said to him, we didn't lose any. Crazy. And this Irish Catholic FDNY guy turns to Michael Handler and says, your God was watching out for you today. Now, Charlie Dadun explained why he wasn't flying that kind of a plane, and he wasn't because he couldn't get certified on it because he didn't have enough hours because he didn't fly on Shabbos. So because he couldn't fly on Shabbos, he was not able to get certified on the bigger planes, and that's why he couldn't fly it. He says, you know, he was always upset about it, and at the end of the day, he may have saved his life. So he had a great story, and that was my turn. And I'm going like, I'm going to tell you, I have nothing like these guys' story. I'll tell you what happened to me, take it for what it's worth, and I spoke for about 15 or 20 minutes. There was no Q&A. And that was that. The next day, I get a call from Rabbi Bronfman, who is the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Farakway. Just passed away this past week. Yes, he did. And he calls me up and one of my kids answered the phone. They said, it's Rabbi Bronfman on the phone. What do you want? I said, ah, it's probably obligatory next day. Thank you very much type of thing. So I get on the phone and he says, yeah, that's yes. You're you're quite welcome. He says, we're having an in Shabbos next Shabbos for the boys. We want you to come and speak Mitzvah Shabbos. I'm like, okay. So I spoke. Spoke to the boys. Literally, they were amazed because you could hear a pin drop. And fine, thank you very much. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from some woman who says, hi, I'm a volunteer for an organization called Echo, and we're having our annual tea, and we'd like you to come speak. I went like, who are you? What is Echo? And how did you get my phone number? So she says to me, you spoke in YFR a few weeks ago. My son goes to YFR and he knew we were having this team. We were looking for a speaker. And he says, Ma, you got to get this guy. And she says, I told him, you know, there's one thing speaking to kids and it's another thing speaking to adults. So I'm sure he was great with kids, but he said, Ma, somebody taped it. Here's the tape. Listen to the tape. She says, I listened to the tape. I picked up the phone. I called you. And it just snowballed from there. I never It was just word of mouth. Now, the book happened because I have a very dear friend in the UK. His name is Moshe Meyerfeld, who runs a Shatora in the UK. And he used to bring groups into New York. And it's a fluke on how he and I met, but it doesn't matter. I spoke for him. He brought a second group in. I spoke again. And then he said to me, look, he calls me Arab Rosh Hashanah. He says, I want to make a proposition to you. You don't have to answer me now, but think about it. He says, I want to bring you to the UK for a week. 
and I want to put together a whole speaking tour for you. Call me after Yantiv and let me know if you're interested. I spoke to my wife and she said, why not? So I called them back after Yantiv and I said, I'll do it. I want two things. One, I was going to be leaving on a Sunday, getting there Monday. We were going to stay through Shabbos. I said, you bring my wife in for Shabbos. That's number one. And number two, I don't care where I stay while I'm there alone. But when my wife comes in, we need to be in a hotel. Those are the two conditions. You were like, done. <laughs> I spoke in 15 venues. In a week. In a week. And I'll tell you, I was more invigorated than any audience I spoke to. You have no idea what it did for me. It was the most amazing trip I'd ever taken in my life, bar none. And I can say that to this day, bar none. It was absolutely incredible. So years later, people used to, every time I would speak, people would say to me, wow, that was great. Can I buy your book? And I'd go, you could if I wrote one, but I didn't write one. <laughs> so Moshe said to me, Moshe really pushed me. And he says to me, Ari, you have to write a book. And then it was a question of what kind of a book do you write? Do you write a secular book or do you write a... What, they, what I would call a from book. And I called Moshe and Moshe said, you absolutely 100% write a secular book. What would you define as a secular book? A secular book is making it so that any person who picks it up and reads it will understand it. And so I wrote it in a way that it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, you can pick it up, you can read it, and you can understand it. I self-published it because there wasn't a literary agent that wanted to take it on. They said it was bad, it was horrible, it wasn't ready for print. So I self-published it. It came out right around the 10th anniversary. I did two interviews, Fox and Friends, right beforehand. And anybody who's read it has been like, wow. I have people telling me, thanks so much for writing the book. I have Jews, non-Jews, it doesn't matter. Every time I speak, I sell books at the end. And I've got a, probably a 15 to 20% rate of books to audience size, which is like unheard of. It's a great close rate, great conversion rate. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. It was. It was like unheard of. So I'm kind of happy about that. Are you still with Cantor Fitzgerald today? No, I left Cantor very recently, about four months ago. I've been pretty much focusing on my speaking. I still think it's very, very important. You know, looking at other opportunities, but it was time. I've been there for almost 24 years. What do you think is the next chapter for you, whether professionally or in terms of this outreach and activism that you're doing? Well, I've joined a couple of speakers bureaus. I'm doing a little bit more speaking now. I may look for another job probably in the nonprofit world now because I think it's time to give back a little bit. Wonderful. So I'm thinking about doing that. And speaking, of course, is just a natural byproduct of this new direction that I want to go in. And I think between the two, I'll be fine. And hopefully the world will be a better place. I mean, you know, like I said, I talk to audiences all the time. And I said, you know, it's a funny question, but do you ever ask somebody, why were we put on this earth? And look for the reaction. They look at you like, what do you mean? Most of the time it's, well, I got to make money, support my family, whatever. And I tell people, it's not just about the money. I said, you know, I figured it out. And they go, yeah, what is it? I said, we were put on this earth so that when we leave it, we leave it in a better position than it was when we got here. That's our job on this earth, to make the world better when we leave it than when we got here. And how do you do that? Okay, how do you do that? There are so many different ways you can do that, whether it's giving more charity, whether it's visiting the sick, whether it's coming active in different organizations, whether it's just a smile, a hello and a smile. That's how you approach people. It's so funny because I once got into an elevator and there was a group of people in the elevator elevator when I got on and the doors closed and I turned to the people in the elevator and I says, you're probably all wondering why I've asked you to this meeting. <laughs> and they all laughed. Exactly what they did. They all smiled. They all laughed. And I said, when I got off the elevator, I said, listen, have a great day. What did it do for them? It made their day. What did I do? A little smile, a little joke. But laughter really helps. It really helps. It makes people in a better mood. So if we all did something a little bit, the world would be a different place today. 
It sounds like you're definitely leaving your audience that you speak to different from when they come in and when they're starting to hear you. And that's in and of itself a wonderful blessing. Just in closing, Ari, give us, you mentioned it earlier, but just some places people can learn about you online, find your work, find your information. You can go to my website. It's www.arishonbrun.com. A-R-I-S-C-H-O-N-B-R-U-N.com. You'll learn all about me over there. If you YouTube Ari Shonbrun, you'll see some of the interviews that I've done. There was a big article in Newsweek magazine at the end of the year of 2001. And I was part of that article. It's a fascinating article. And again, my book you can find on my website. You can get it in Amazon. And again, available as an ebook as well hardcover book as well. If you happen to be in Cedarhurst, you can pick it up at Central Park. At the coffee shop. At the coffee shop, Central Park. That's right. He is selling the books. I've already uh, restocked him twice. <laughs> I hope he gives you some free coffee at least. Well, thank you very much, Ari Schoenbrunn, for joining you. Really an incredible tale. I've learned a lot about how just an ordinary person can be going about their life and suddenly it can be transformed. And the question then becomes, what do we do with that? And really, do we need to wait for it to be transformed? Or can we proactively transform ourselves and hopefully enlighten others, as seems to be the thesis of your message that you've shared with us today? Thank you so much and all the best in everything that you continue to do. Thank you very much. Love being on the show. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.